Hello, and welcome to this new podcast for The Lancet. It's the 26th of October. I'm Gavin Cleaver. Today, we're going to be talking to Joe Parkin Daniels, a British writer based in Colombia and the author of a fascinating world report in this week's issue, in which he interviews a general running a military hospital in Bogota one year after the government signed a peace treaty with the FARC rebels. Joe joins me on the line from Bogota. Joe, how did you come to write this piece? I came to Colombia three years ago. Uh, when the peace deal was still being negotiated. And at times during those during the initial um, year or so of being here, it looked like that peace deal would never be would never be reached uh, between the FARC and the government. Uh, and one of the kind of main signs of conflict uh, you see in Colombia is victims of of landmines. And that is essentially what drew me to this piece was now obviously the peace deal has been signed it has been reached it's now that that happened a year ago and it's now being implemented uh the number of landmine victims is 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 going down and there's been around 11,000 landmine victims in colombia with about 70 percent of them soldiers so i wanted to find out a bit more about how a hospital that serves the military, the military hospital in Bogota, would kind of adapt to uh, peacetime and to to fewer landmine injuries, what, what they could then devote the resources to, and also what would that say about Colombia in general in its approach to peace. So that's how I came to came to write this, this story. And so perhaps you could give us a little bit of background on, on the extent of the Colombian war, because I think you know, to Westerners, the idea of a five-decade war sounds absolutely incredible. To, to call it a war is is almost slightly grandiose in a way because it is five decades. But you always hear about it here in terms of conflict, in terms of a it's an internal conflict, and that's for two reasons. One, it's 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 a war, but it's not kind of totalizing. It's not it's not like Syria where. If you're, you know, wherever you are, you are at risk of of a bomb falling on you. In Colombia, the the war has been low intensity and and asymmetrical, uh, but it has still taken a huge toll. I mean, we're talking about at least two hundred and twenty thousand killed. We're talking about uh, seven million uh, displaced uh, IDPs, you know, refugees in their own country. We're talking of upwards of sixty thousand. Uh, disappeared. That's you know, 60,000 mothers who don't know where their children are, who have the pain of loss and the pain of not knowing. Uh, we're talking about an, an untold amount. There's just no data on the number of victims of sexual abuse under the, the banner of the conflict, uh, of, of land stolen. And so the it really is a, a very kind of affecting conflict. But it's it's and it's gone. It's continued kind of slowly in the countryside over the last five years. But it hasn't. It's never reached this kind of level of of absolute destruction that you you think of when you think of a of a war. Uh, but that's not to say it hasn't taken its toll on on the country's kind of makeup. And to add to that, the the it's often kind of referred to as a conflict because the armed groups at play, the primary one, the largest is the FARC, who are now in a peace process. They're a Marxist guerrilla group. Um, they, they, until about sort of five, five, six years ago, were, were considered by the government, by the US, by the EU, as just being a terrorist group. 
So to call to say you're at war in, implies kind of gives them some some kind of political legitimacy. And there's other groups as well at play. This is the other thing that we need to remember. Colombia is in a peace process now with the FARC, but it's there's still another uh, leftist guerrilla group, the ELN, who are in kind of very early phase of peace talks. And there's lots of criminal groups that are descendants from right-wing paramilitary organizations that kind of worked tacitly alongside the state. And so when we talk about peace in Colombia, really we're talking about kind of a post-agreement Colombia, not not post-conflict Colombia at this stage. So in your World Report in, in this week's Lancet, you interview a general who runs a military hospital in Bogota. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about why this hospital is so pivotal. Well, I, I see the hospital as being kind of pivotal and being a good kind of indicator of the level of, of casualties uh, on on one side of the conflict that, that uh, has been taken. So coming back to landmines, there's been you know, 11,000 landmine victims, 70% the soldiers, the vast majority of treaters uh, at that military hospital in Bogota, others in military hospital under the same network, the same institution, but the bases in other cities. And it's so uh, it's become a kind of a kind of symbol of the military toll or the, 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 the toll the conflict takes on the military during the during the conflict. And you can see how it's changing. And this is why I kind of was to the story. Six years ago there were 233 soldiers wounded by IEDs, uh, improvised uh, explosive devices. Uh, there were uh, six, so 233 soldiers wounded there and treated, uh, wounded and treated there, with 100 receiving amputations. Whereas you go to this year and there's just been 12 injured and only one amputation. And so it's kind of this. I think it serves as a very good uh, symbol, a very is a very good emblem of of the conflict and the toll it can take on on one side admittedly there's no kind of military hospital for the FARC. In wider terms in Colombia what difference has the peace deal with the FARC made to everyday life? Does it feel different there? Well that, that that's a, a good question and not as easy to answer as it should be because uh, in my, my time here and uh, what I've come to realize is that there really are two Colombias. There's the, the Colombia that exists in the large urban centers, the, in the large cities in Bogota, Medellin, Cali. Uh, and then there's the Colombia out in the fields, which is where most of this conflict has been fought. And so in the cities, the kind of the change you feel, it's, it actually feels a little bit more polarized almost. It's not a good change. Because you have to remember a year ago when this peace deal was put to a referendum, uh, it, it didn't pass. It, it narrowly failed to pass. So about 50% of you know, the electorate that showed up didn't want this deal. Now they have it because it, it went to Congress instead. It was kind of amended. And so they feel, a lot of people feel kind of cheated into having to put up with a peace deal they, they didn't want. And so why, for, maybe you could explain for us, why would the people not want that peace deal? Well, there's the, the 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 argument put forward is is always that they want a peace deal, just not that peace deal. Uh, there was, there's concessions in it that people weren't okay with. Uh, the, the largest complaints were that it guaranteed uh, seats in Congress for uh, FARC members, non-voting seats, but nonetheless seats uh, unelected for two electoral cycles, which is 
uh, 10 years in total. And people didn't like that. They thought it was unconstitutional, undemocratic. And also they thought there was not, there was not enough justice promised by the others, that, that the rebels would get off light because the vast majority wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go to any jail. They, if they submit to the process, they would be, and they were found to have committed crimes above rebellion or sedition, which is, which is, uh, there was an amnesty for that, but anything more serious, human rights abuses, they would get kind of restricted liberty in loosely defined terms, which was interpreted to be just, you know, kind of a holiday camp by, um, by those that opposed it. And so those two deals, those two parts of the deal, people took major exception with. And those two parts of the deal weren't, uh, weren't, weren't changed when they revised it um, after the referendum and then passed it through Congress. Those two parts of the deal stayed. And the argument being that if you don't have kind of guarantees of amnesty for, for the crimes committed during the war, and you don't have uh, political participation, then what you're talking about is a surrender and not a peace deal. So that, that, that's the kind of the, the difficult tightrope that negotiators had to walk. And that's why people kind of narrowly oppose it. Also, there was the, there's a component of the hard right in Colombia that is um, that say they're not, but I suspect they, they wouldn't be happy unless uh, every FARC member were dead or in jail. Uh, they're, they're people who don't want peace. Uh, they, want, or they, you know, they want peace through strength and through destruction of the other side. Better said, that's the opposition to the deal, as I saw it. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's really interesting. Such a series that, you know, it, it appears to, to non-expert eyes to be like, why wouldn't you want peace? But there's so many nuances to it. No, it's, um, that's really fascinating. So the Colombian healthcare system during the conflict, I assume there wasn't much chance for it to move forward. It was kind of just coping with the conflict. But now that the conflict is over, is there any chance for change in Colombian healthcare? The largest problem, as I see it in Colombia during the conflict and, and still now, is, is access to healthcare in those, those rural zones. So uh, where the FARC once were. So everyone in Colombia currently has access, in theory, to, to healthcare, either through uh, public uh, insurance or, or privately. But the, the problem is that there's a massive country divided by three mountain ranges, two deserts, jungles, plains, and as a result, it's been impossible for the state to like, get into all corners of the country. And with that, it's been impossible to get healthcare to all corners of the country. The theory goes that now, uh, there's the, the FARC aren't in these regions that they will be able to enter, the state will be able to enter without having to shoot their way in and will be able to bring all state services, healthcare, education, you know, policing, everything to, uh, to, to these communities, to these isolated communities. But in reality, that's, that's not necessarily easy because other groups, other armed groups are filling the gap the FARC has left behind. The FARC is involved in a manner of uh, all manner of illegal activities, including drug trafficking, illegal gold mining, uh, and so other armed groups want that. They're moving in, which makes it hard for the state and for healthcare to reach. Also, this, the healthcare system in Colombia is still underfunded. Uh, you still have huge um, endemics or huge risk of endemics of tropical diseases, of dengue, of you know, fever, and uh, malaria in, in certain areas. Uh, and then 
there's also a high risk of disasters. Just just uh, last year we saw a, but not earlier this year. I'm, I'm wrong. Six months ago, a huge uh, a huge landslide that killed uh, hundreds of people, um, and that brings with it a wave of disease risk as well. And so, the access to the to the regions, getting bringing healthcare to isolated zones should, in theory, be easier now. But we have to kind of wait and see if, in reality, it is. And it's it's a really fascinating piece you've written as well, and it's it's been super interesting to get so much background as well on uh, on the state of medical care in Colombia. Joe, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you. Cheers, Gavin.